You are listening to The Mother Good Podcast, episode number five. Today we are talking with Ashley Smith, who is a pediatric dietitian, about one of the most fretted over and frustrating aspects of parenthood, feeding our children. So if your child is a picky eater and you're frustrated with mealtime and you dread it, if your child is always asking for a snack and they're always hungry, if you want your child to have a healthy relationship with food and have a healthy body image both as a child and as an adult, then this episode is for you. Now, not only does Ashley give the best advice and practical tips I've ever heard on how to feed your child, I really love her personal story as well. You would think that as a pediatric dietitian that feeding her own children would be a breeze, but as she explains in this episode, her first child was a really picky eater, as most of us have very picky eaters, so she discovered firsthand how to apply her knowledge in real life, which gives her even better insight into the average parent's struggles. Ever since recording this podcast with Ashley, I've been implementing her tips already with my 19-month-old daughter, and I'm so much happier already, both during and after mealtime, and I'm satisfied with how my daughter is eating. Before, I never knew if I was feeding my daughter the right way. I didn't know if I was giving her too much or too little, and I didn't know if I was giving her enough variety in her diet, and I also didn't even know how to give variety in the diet. And now after implementing these tips from Ashley, I finally have a game plan and mealtime is so much easier and I have so much peace about it. And I'm so excited for you to listen to this episode because I know you will feel the same way after listening. Ashley's advice and tips are applicable whether you have a two-year-old, five-year-old, 10-year-old, 15-year-old, whatever age your children are, her tips will apply and I know you will be so empowered after this episode. And just a final note before we get into the episode, I also wanted to ask a big favor for all of you listening. If you could rate the Mother Good podcast and leave a review, that would help us so much and we would be so grateful for you doing that. We're trying to get on the Apple new and noteworthy section and in order to do so, we have to get a certain amount of reviews of our podcast. And so since that is a goal of ours, it would really help us out so much if you would just quickly take a few seconds to rate us and or leave a review. So thank you so much in advance. And without further ado, here is our amazing conversation with Ashley Smith. Welcome to Mother Good, where we strongly believe that there's no way to be a perfect mom, but many ways to be a good one. I'm your host, Emily Carney, and I'm so happy you are here. Listen in on authentic and positive conversations to get the best practical tips to help you live to your full potential as a mom. Our content is also judgment-free within the context of evidence-based research. If you are looking for a meaningful motherhood community and ready to thrive, not just survive, you are in the right place. Mothergood is a nonprofit organization funded by our generous donors. If you like this podcast, please consider joining them at mothergoodco.com slash give. Hi, Ashley. Welcome to the show. Hey, Emily. Thanks so much for having me. Of course. So could you tell us a little bit about yourself and then also how you came about um, having this social media page and business called Veggies and Virtues? Sure. Yeah, I'd be happy to. So my name is Ashley Smith and I'm a pediatric dietitian by trade, but I have stayed at home with my kids since my oldest was born. And we live just outside of Houston, Texas, and I live with my husband and I have a five-year-old daughter, a three-year-old daughter, and then an almost one-year-old son. So um, a lot of what I do professionally is also what I get to do each day personally by staying at home with the our three kids. Um, and we chose for me to kind of stay home when my daughter was born just due to my husband's um, work-life dynamic and things like that. And at the time I was working at a hospital, so there wasn't a lot of flexibility. So we did that, but it's been a great opportunity just to get to really practice what I preach and get to walk through some of this just regular parenting struggles that all parents face, even pediatric dietitians face with feeding their kids. From the beginning with my oldest, Feeding was always kind of a struggle. So my introduction to parenthood was very different than what I expected it would be, especially as a pediatric dietitian. I kind of went into everything thinking, you know, like breastfeeding was going to be a breeze and I was super dedicated and introducing solids was going to be amazing. And I was going to home make everything. And 
I just kind of thought, you know, I would have this adventurous eater who is this poster child for what a great dietitian I was, as if, you know, all of that reflects on how we are as a parent and things like that. And um, I just quickly had a really big um, pride check, I guess you could say, with my oldest. And so that kind of just plummeted me into how um, how professionally things would change a little bit once I was a parent. Um, I'd had a lot of experience working at a pediatric hospital before staying home. But then when I was working with my daughter, I just got to um, kind of start to see things from that different light. And so when she started Mom's Day Out when she was around two, I started just um, an Instagram page to kind of share, you know, pictures of her lunch boxes or just kind of like little tidbits of things we were doing. She was a pretty apprehensive eater early on, or as you know, a lot of people refer to it as like picky eating. That was a problem from about like 13 months on with her. So we just kind of hit every hiccup possible with her. And honestly, it made me a lot, it has made me a lot better dietitian, but that's kind of how veggies and virtue started out because I just kind of started out sharing little tidbits of things of just think like um, strategies I was trying with her or lunch boxes I was sending for her and just different things like that. And then the demand just kept kind of growing. Um, first with just a lot of like friends and family and people who knew I was a pediatric dietitian. Um, and then, you know, my Instagram presence just grew more as more people, you know, shared similar struggles to those that I was facing in my real life. You know, I, I enjoy that this is my career path and that it's something I've known I wanted to do since I was a teenager, but um, it's also a big blessing that I get to do it from home now in my real, in my real life with my real kids. And I get to, um, really test out strategies that I know are evidence-based and best practice, but, um, just being able to like understand the struggles that my clients go through on a personal level has really transformed, I would say, kind of where I'm at, um, on a business level. So, um, so yeah, so I still stay home full time as of like a month ago, we finally got some hired help one day a week. So that helps me a lot because coordinating nap times and night times to work with three kids is a little tricky, but, um, you know, I just, I'm thankful that I get to do this from home and still spend time with my kids, but also, you know, invest in the lives and the families of others who are kind of in similar life stages and um, facing similar feeding struggles. That's an incredible journey. And I'm not sure why, but when I was listening to you talk about how difficult it was to feed your oldest and you being a pediatric dietitian, it just kind of gave me a lot of comfort mm -hmm. to hear that, knowing that, you know, you being a professional even struggled with feeding your child. Should we have a certain goal? You know, at least for me, sometimes I don't, I kind of feel frustrated or I'm concerned that my daughter either isn't eating enough food or even just the right kinds of food, you know? So how can we approach mealtime from our perspective so that we feel satisfied and we're at peace with how each meal ends? Yeah, I think that's a great question because I would say probably about 95% of the clients I work with um, are not feeling satisfied and are not feeling at peace. They are very frustrated. They have a lot of concerns, a lot of anxiety, a lot of stress, and honestly, just dread mealtimes often. And so um, often what I'm trying to work on with families is helping them kind of like redefine the eating experience and redefine what success is. Because for most of us, kind of the overall generalization I think is safe to make is that we judge success of a meal based off if our child ate and how much. And not just how much because they can eat all the bread, but we're still not going to feel successful. We want, you know, we often see that like that meal um, was successful if our child ate a wide variety of all the things offered and plenty of vegetables and things like that, which is the goal big picture. And I, you know, I work with um, a lot of different age ranges, but especially with families who have younger age children, I think if we can see that like this is the feeding foundation that we're setting in these early developmental years, especially like when our children are um, still at home. And I don't, I know a lot of kids are in daycare or preschool or things like that. So I know not all kids are at home full time, but in these earlier years before they're exposed to more um, social pressures or, you know, social eating environments and things like that. I think if we as parents can just really look at like these formative years and the goal of exposing our kids to a wide variety of foods and, you know, helping them be familiar with healthy, nourishing options and getting in the habit of predictable meal and snack routines. And then just emphasizing that they're eating in a safe place and minimizing distractions. And some of those things, that's where if the parents can kind of focus on what their role is in the feeding relationship and then start to kind of let things blossom from there, 
I think the goal seems to become a lot more manageable for parents. We shift it from seeing like the goal of like the metric of success at a meal is how much did my kid eat or if, whether, and how much they ate. But if we can take a step back and realize that all the literature and the recommendations from the American Academy of Pediatrics, the Academy of Nutrition and Dietetics, pretty much everything across the board is suggesting that if we can recognize the goal is for parents to decide what, when, and where food is offered, and for our child to decide if, whether, and how much, and if we can bring the feeding foundation back to that, we can really see success through a different lens. And so I think for families, they when they can come back to that, they can kind of start to feel more satisfied and more at peace because a parent realizes like, look, if I've already decided what is offered and I'm offering healthy options at regularly spaced, you know, or predictable meals and snack patterns and things like that, they realize that this goal of getting my child to either if, whether, and how much they ate, that's not even on me as the parent. And so I think parents can start to feel peace. And often with my clients, I say, you know, you have dietitian's permission that if your child doesn't clear their plate or didn't eat all their vegetables and things like that, like that isn't actually our goal in these early formative years. Our goal is actually to set up this foundation for them to understand how eating and the feeding relationship works so that as they get older and as they, you know, do have a little bit more autonomy and independence and get to be school aged and are exposed to different social situations or sleepovers or field trips and, um, you know, into an adolescence where there's so much more independence and um, ability for them to make their own feeding choices. We want to equip kids with, with, eating competence. And we want them to become competent eaters without us, you know, probing or pressuring or, you know, having to coax them into eating their vegetables and things like that. So um, I'm kind of giving a long-winded question or long-winded answer here, but I think if parents can just realize like the goal is not one single meal, it's not the amount of vegetables eaten or not at one single meal, it's not even one single day, but it's really, you know, just putting brick by brick on that feeding foundation so that moving forward every year of childhood into adolescence and into adulthood, you know, we want to raise children that when we're grandmothers and our children are mothers and fathers themselves, they have a healthy relationship with food. They are not, you know, yo-yo dieting or struggling with body image or weight issues or, you know, struggling to make healthy choices of their own. And they're not passing that down to their children and the future generation and our grandchildren. So if I can help parents wrap their head around that big picture and yet at the same time simplify it to the day-to-day on what that parent's role is at a single meal without, you know, trying to kind of focus too much on just that single meal, we tend to make a lot of progress. Does that make sense? Definitely. Yeah. So it sounds like exposure really at each meal is the goal, I guess. It would do you think that that would that kind of summarizes yes. everything? Okay. <laughs> yes. I just ranted for five minutes about it, but yes, that's that is exactly in a nutshell, exposure. And I think, you know, the reason I keep going beyond that is because oftentimes parents will, you know, be like, I do expose my kid and they don't eat it, or they throw it, or they dump their plate. And it's kind of like it's easy to say like you provide your child the sides or the parent's job is what, when, and where, and the child gets to decide if, whether, and how much. And most of my clients are the parents who have at least some bit of familiarity with that, but then they're stuck and they're like, I do expose my kid and they still don't need it. That was my follow-up question. So just giving a little hypothetical you know, situation. So let's say we are providing well-balanced meals at every single meal. And then every single meal, you know, our child just looks at the food yeah, either throws it or, you know, doesn't even want to touch it. Maybe they lick it. Maybe they try something and then they basically don't eat. You know, what, what should we do after that? Should it be, okay, I guess they're going hungry. Should we get out our, you know, little squeezy packs that all kids seem to like, but they're filled with lots of fruit and sugar? Um, Or should we just say, throw up our hands and say, you know what, I don't want to deal with all the food being thrown on the floor at this point, or just all the food going to waste. Um, So I'm just going to give them what I know they'll like, I guess, like what, what should we do in that kind of situation? Yeah, so that's a great question. So and this actually, it's funny, as you mentioned, like the squeeze pouch, because that exact example came up with a client this week. And yeah, it's really easy to say like offer, offer, offer. But when the child either doesn't eat it, refuses it, licks it, spits it out, and then we kind of have this potentially hungry child, what we really need to get at, again, is going back to the foundation and having a parent be as proactive rather than reactive as possible. 
So if a parent knows that they have come up with meal combinations that, you know, consider their child and have offered them preferred and non-preferred foods at a meal, and they're spacing out meals and snacks throughout the day. So generally most kids need to eat like every two to three hours. So if you are offering eating opportunities throughout the day, parents can take, going back to the question before about like peace and, you know, having a little bit of ease in this feeding relationship, parents can feel some ease and that like they've done their job and that if their child chooses not to eat or chooses not to eat as much as maybe the parent deems seems quote unquote enough, parents can rest assured that there's going to be another eating opportunity, you know, two to three hours later. The division of responsibility is kind of this overarching framework that all of this falls within. And with that, it's considered like a responsive feeding, um, feeding approach. And so it's not strict. It's not like, you know, at 9.05 is when we do this. It's not intended to be like rigid. It's meant to be responsive. So in the example, like you said, if I knew my child didn't um, maybe eat much at breakfast and we're going to go to the park, I might plan to have a you know, snack on like the two hour side of versus three hours later, because I know three hours in, they're going to be like running like crazy, playing really hard and already be starting to kind of get hangry. Where if I, you know, am responsive and I realize like they didn't eat a lot at breakfast, I want to go ahead and like offer them another opportunity to eat a little bit earlier, closer to like maybe two hours as soon as we get to the park or whatever it might be, something like that. But what I wouldn't do and what I see happen often with parents is, you know, we just reach for the squeeze pouch or we go and get a yogurt or we let the kid have, you know, a string cheese out of the fridge or something like that, like immediately after the meal. And that reinforces the behavior we're trying to get away from with our kids. And so that wasn't us deciding what was offered, when it was offered, and where it was offered. Right. Because they know, oh, I don't have to eat this meal because I can just get my squeeze pouch or string cheese after when I'm done eating. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Exactly. So that's when the parent becomes reactive to their child doing their role. The child gets to decide if, whether, and how much they eat. But we need to equip our kids to realize the consequence of that. And, you know, something I see every single day with parents is parents feel a lot of guilt if their child is hungry. And I even actually had a friend over today for a play date and she was like, you know what? I didn't, the first time I ever felt permission for my child to have the sensation of hunger was through you because she's like, I thought that would like reflect it poorly on me as a parent that my child had the feeling of hunger. And she's like, then I realized, you know, that something I share often and something that she said she realized was how you know, we want our kids to realize like they're not meant to just feel like kind of satisfied all the time. That tends to be when they, we let kids graze all day. They never actually really understand appetite regulation because they never truly feel hunger and they don't really understand fullness. And I'm definitely not endorsing like starve your kids here. Like hopefully that goes without saying, but rather if you give kids regular opportunities to eat every two to three hours, which is appropriate for pretty much all kids ages, even, you know, in infancy, you don't give a bottle to a child or, you know, breastfeed a child as an infant much more often than I'd say every two hours or so, depending on the age. And so if we can help them learn that appetite regulation of, you know, when I'm hungry, I eat and then I need to eat to a point of like appropriate fullness to sustain me until the next eating opportunity. And so that's physiologically important for them to understand. But just developmentally and socially, it's important for them too, because then they can focus on other things. They can focus on other aspects of their development and they're not preoccupied with food. When do I get to eat again? Is it time for another snack? I mean, we all have either been in the situation or been around kids where it's like every 10 minutes they're asking for a snack. And that's because they're just kind of like kind of hanging on and coasting along with their appetite rather than like really developing that. So if parents can realize it's okay for a child to get up from a meal and having had eaten very little, assuming that you've offered them considerate choices, you know, you're offering them things that you know, they may like, or that you know, um, that they do like, um, typically the recommendation is like a preferred and a non-preferred food at every eating opportunity. So that exposes them to new foods, but it also reassures you, you've given them something that, you know, if they're hungry, chances are they would eat, that would be their preferred food. Um, but beyond that, don't back that up. So just getting a little bit into the preferred and non-preferred food, just to make sure I, I understand it. So for example, my daughter, she really likes hummus. So I know if I put hummus on the plate, she will definitely eat it. So if maybe there's other foods I know she doesn't like, or maybe she hasn't tried before, then I guess the preferred food would be the hummus 
And then the non-preferred food would be, you know, the X factor unknown, whether or not she likes it. Is that, is that kind of the idea? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And so a framework that I created and recently trademarked is like love, it, it goes by the name of love it, like it, learning it. And some, it's a framework that I walk parents through for offering meal or offering food that meals, but also at snacks. And the premise is very basic. I mean, it goes a lot more in depth, but for the sake of this conversation, I'll kind of keep it basic with if parents can remember to offer their, their child a food that they love, that they like, and that they're still learning at every meal and snack, they're going to continue to help their children grow their quote unquote, love it list. So a love it food in this case would be like something that your child eats majority of the time. I'd say greater than 75% of the time, it's the food that like, you know, is kind of a sure win. The like it foods, maybe like 50, 50, if it's a food, if it's paired with a food that they don't like as much, they will probably eat the like it food. But if it's paired with maybe a food that they really love, they may or may not eat it. So it's kind of the 50, 50 food. And then the learning it food would be the food that, you know, like you said, the X factor food, the food that they rarely, if ever, have eaten. They maybe have never even been exposed to it. So it's kind of that wild card food that you don't know how they react to. Or it's a food that, you know, you've offered steamed broccoli a hundred times and they're still just not really on board with it. I wouldn't offer, you know, just steamed broccoli as a food because you know that then they're probably not going to eat. So yes, then there's an issue of like, are we offering um, the variety that we know is going to help nourish our child best at the stage that they're at? And so going with your example of like hummus, if hummus, you know, is a love it food, then kind of think through what you could pair it with hummus. I mean, if she will eat it just by the spoon, then maybe that's not an issue. You know, it's not like she has to have a dipper or a vehicle to necessarily eat it with. But because, you know, that's already preferred food, the research shows that if we can help children pair these preferred and non-preferred foods, it actually helps warm them up towards these non-preferred foods because having that familiar food that they're already you know, that we know that they already favor available to them helps lessen their anxiety towards potentially like a new food. If you're in this, you know, children's feeding space at all, you might've heard the term neophobic and it's basically like the fear of new things, but it comes up a lot in the feeding research and in feeding kids, because there's this notion that kids are neophobic, their fear of new foods. And so when we pair these new foods or you know, maybe it's not necessarily new. Maybe they've seen it, like I said, the steamed broccoli. Maybe they've seen it several times, but it's still new to them from a sensory perspective. It's still new because they don't know how it's going to taste or how they're it's going to react. You know, how it's going to feel in their mouth or what it's going to feel like when they swallow it. All these new sensory things that's still new to them, and that that newness for a child can sometimes be intimidating, and it can sometimes create anxiety and things like that. So when we can pair it with a food that we know is already familiar, we know they already feel safe and comfortable and not anxious at all around, it tends to make better gains in terms of um, in terms of getting them to eat more variety, but also going back to what we said before with that exposure component. It helps us as parents know how to keep exposing our kids to new foods because otherwise we tend to get into this rut of, you know, only offering our child their preferred foods, you know, only giving kids their pizza pockets or their mac and cheese. And, you know, the only fruit they'll eat is this. And I cut it the same way every time. And we just get very specific because we're so focused on making sure that they eat and that that's the goal of the meal that we kind of drop out all exposure. So if we can realize like, okay, I can still offer mac and cheese on occasion, but let me pair it with something that like, you know, maybe they're kind of 50, 50 on blueberries. Okay. Well, I'll serve mac and cheese with blueberries and maybe they're still learning to like steamed broccoli since apparently I'm on that kick of the steamed broccoli. Like maybe then we offer it with that. Well, all of a sudden this mac and cheese became a lot more well-rounded of a meal because the way that we're exposing them to other foods in the presence of mac and cheese kind of helps us as parents be more accountable with this love it, like it, learning it plate to continue to re-expose our kids without, you know, having to feel this pressure of like, okay, I got to get them to eat it. It's the focus is on exposure and then we can make steps of progress from there. But that really is like the starting place. So I have two follow-ups questions for what you just said. So what about portions? Um, I noticed just for me personally, when I first started feeding my daughter that, you know, I would get personally extremely frustrated because I think I was giving her too big of portions. And then I felt like I was wasting the food or if she was, I don't know, tossing it on the ground or whatever, cause she didn't like it. But then I, I just, you know, started giving her tiny portions, like maybe a bite 
you know, a bite, uh, her size bite of each food that I didn't know she would like just so if she didn't like it, I didn't feel like, oh, I'm wasting all this food. Is that, so I guess, um, so the, the first follow-up is, you know, the portion size, what should we do? You know, is that a good approach? And is the, what, what should we do about portions for the different categories you said? And then secondly, what about fruit? I feel like fruits in its own separate category because mm-hmm. I noticed that if I give my daughter fruit at a meal, that she just loves all fruit and she'll just, mm-hmm. you know, point at the fruit. She's only 18 months old. She'll be like, you know, the area where the fruit is in going more, more. Mm-hmm. Like, okay, well, now she's not going to eat anything else on her plate. So then I just stop giving her fruit at meals and then it's fine. So anyway, I just kind of wanted to follow up with those things. So on portions and fruit. Yeah, no, that's a great question. So on the portion sizes, um, something I'm actually working on right now is for love it, like it learning it kind of this exposure concept, but it basically the portion size I would recommend for families is if it's a food that, you know, your child's still learning to like basically being one that you don't expect that they're probably going to eat very willingly, keep it super small. Like you said, one, your parent, like the parent's mindset automatically reduces expectation when we offer them something that is less than a bite. And I'm talking about like the size of your pinky nail, like offer it small because one, if they throw it, not a big deal. It's not 50 pieces of sweet potato going everywhere. It's literally one little piece. But also as a child, when you think of like the child's experience with this food, it's a lot less intimidating if it's one little thing. Like all of a sudden it's a lot easier to interact with it. It's less scary to touch it. There's a lot less like perceived pressure that they're expected to eat all this learning it food. So keep it super small. If it's a like it food, I would say like kind of stick to like age appropriate norms. So in general, there's been different research done to kind of show like what's the most appropriate gauge for, you know, portion sizes for kids. But with your daughter being like 18 months in general, it's one tablespoon of food per year of age. And obviously there's, you know, exceptions to the rule. Like you're not going to serve one tablespoon of peanut butter per year of age for, you know, up to eight years old or something like that. But in general, the reason we know that that tends to be a good benchmark, kind of like very overgeneralized rule of thumb is because it does give parents a better understanding of like a graduated approach of kind of how this increases over time. So with like a like it food, I would offer a very like general small portion for age, you know, offer like one or two tablespoons for your daughter of rice or oatmeal or whatever it might be until you know how she's going to respond. Some days she may be decide she's totally obsessed with the oatmeal and she wants more, in which case you can give her seconds. Some days she may decide she wants nothing to do with it, in which case, you know, less was wasted. But if it's a love it food, and we'll just talk about fruit here since you brought that up chances are they're going to eat more than what we would say is like an average portion size. Portion sizes comes up with parents all the time as if every kid is going to eat the same amount. And that'll be a point I would like to touch on in a minute. But to keep with the point of fruit, kids will eat larger portions of their preferred foods. If it's fruit in this case, if it's mac and cheese, they'll probably eat more bowls than they would, you know, if it was something else. Um, But with the topic of fruit, I think it's okay to offer them more than what's available. I have like an entire blog post on basically what to do when your child only eats the love it food. And it, in this case of like fruit, parents ask me all the time, like, okay, well, that's great. I offered strawberries as the love it food at dinner, but then all they wanted to eat was strawberries. Well, so a few things, one, we don't want to, one thing with like the feeding relationship is we don't want to restrict them unnecessarily. So we want them to know that they have freedom to eat for the hunger and fullness because we're trying to teach them to self-regulate. And so if we then intervene and just based off principle say you can't have any more strawberries, that becomes a little bit of like a power struggle in the feeding relationship, which we want to try and stick away from. It's a different story if you say, you know, we only have one container of strawberries and we need half of them for our lunches tomorrow. This is what's available for this meal. And then if your child, you know, eats all that's available, you can say there's other foods available at the table. If you're still hungry, that's all the strawberries we have. But if it's something that say you have, you just went strawberry picking and you have like bukus of strawberries, you can just kind of let them eat because they're going to self-regulate and you can let them, you know, have seconds or if they want thirds, you can give them more amounts. The caveat to that, going back to what I said before about being responsive is say this didn't happen at dinner. Say this happened at breakfast and they eat like an obnoxious amount of strawberries. And it's like they had, you know, almost a whole container worth. We'll just be a little extravagant with it. They had a lot of strawberries. 
as a parent, you then become responsive and say, I probably don't need to offer them as much fruit the rest of the day. Definitely don't need to offer them strawberries again, but I probably don't need to give them fruit at every meal and snack because I know that they've already met a lot of their nutrient needs that are met from fruit just at breakfast. So instead at snack, I'm going to pair it with a vegetable or instead at snack, we're going to do, you know, we're going to focus on dairy or kind of like try and balance out their nutrient needs that way. But I, again, I would say as the parent, try and be proactive in doing that in planning and being responsive to how much they ate rather than in that moment, trying to just react, oh my gosh, you're eating more than I expected of this food. I need to take back the control of that because that is a job that we want the kids to, we want our children to learn how to do in terms of self-regulating. That, yeah, that's, those are really great tips. So um, going back to the portion sides, because I know that you said you wanted to get back into that a little bit more. What should we, I guess, be aware of when it comes to portion sizes? Should we have a certain goal in mind with that? Or I guess, how, how can we be at peace with the the various portion sizes that our children are eating, you know, throughout, you know, starting from toddler all the way up through the teenage years? Yeah, so that's a great question. So I post on my Instagram all the time, like different pictures of my kids plate. And quite honestly, my 11 month old son often will eat more than my five year old daughter. I mean, like he just has a heartier appetite, but my five year old has always been a very petite eater. She grows according to her growth curve but she's always just had a more petite appetite. And I would not know that if I had this whole time been the one to dictate how much she ate. And so the key here that parents need to consider is that we want to empower our children to be in tune with their biologically, physiologically, like wired innate sense of hunger and fullness, because that is a life skill that if we can help our children understand that from an early age, that they eat when they're hungry and stop when they're full, I mean, that is a tremendous gift that we could give our kids growing up because we can all kind of see how as adults, we maybe have been raised in like the clean plate club culture where our metric of are we full is, is our plate clear? Well, we know from a lot of different research, like that's not the most effective means for being an intuitive and a mindful eater. And so with kids, what we want to do is we want to, you know, obviously offer a wide variety and healthy options and things like that. But I think using that metric I was sharing earlier, of like if it's a learning it food, a small portion, a like it food, like an average portion, and then a love it food, you can still offer a maybe a smaller portion, but you know that they're probably going to want seconds of it because it tends to be. So I would say, you know, you could probably give them more than maybe that one tablespoon per, per year of age of that love it food because you know that they're going to want more of it. But then from there, we really just want to encourage the self-regulation. And if parents can get out of comparing what their child eats compared to another child or even like sibling to sibling and having this preconceived notion of how much their kid should eat and instead tries to, you know, just observe their child and observe and encourage their child to do that self-regulation. Their child may eat twice as much as their best friend. They may eat half as much as their best friend. And that doesn't reflect anything poorly on the child. It doesn't reflect anything poorly on the parent. If the child is growing according to their growth curve, whether they fall at the 10th percentile or the 90th percentile, we want them to trend with the way that they're genetically supposed to trend on the growth curve. And if they're trending, that means that they are self-regulating in the way that we need and the way that their bodies need to. And so as parents, we can find peace in that, that, you know, my child is just, you know, with my oldest, for example, like I, I am at peace with the fact that she has just been a more petite eater for a long time right now. She's like in a growth spurt and I can totally tell because I'm like, wow, this is more food than you've ever eaten. But again, I wouldn't know that if I had kind of been dictating it the whole time or telling her you need to take more bites of this or no way can you be full already. You need to have this. And like, if I had been intervening all of this time, I wouldn't be able to see as many of these like fluctuations in her appetite over time. I really like that you said that about not comparing your children's eating habits to other kids, because I, I guess that's something I, I didn't really think of, but I definitely have fallen into that trap before. And, you know, my daughter's more of in the, the 90th percentile in terms of weight. Um, but I know a couple that are in the 10 percent whose children are in the 10th percentile around that. So, you know, it's always just been so interesting seeing how differently they eat in terms of, you know, quantity and, and what they eat. And I think that's so important too. Sorry, just real quick, just, you know, while your daughter's 18 months now, you think of like, well, how does this, how does this look when she's 18? If you've empowered her to self-regulate and to tune into her body and hunger and fullness 
and to have that eating competence, that would be such a gift to her at 18 years when she looks around the people, you know, her friends and is that much more aware of, you know, social pressures and things like that, where body image is not a, a thing. It doesn't matter if she's at the 90th percentile still or not. She knows like, this is who I am. This is how I was built. This is how, what my body needs for growth and development and things like that, rather than expecting, you know, we're all going to be the same size. And am I eating too much because my friend eats half as much? Like if we can just instill this understanding of the way our bodies work and what our bodies need nutritionally from an early age, it can really empower our kids as adolescents and into adulthood how to then feed and fuel their bodies for their bodies. Because as moms, we all know some of us have very fast metabolisms. Some of us have very slow metabolisms. You get into the, you know, after babies and some people lose baby weight fast. Some people hang on to it longer, like all these different things. But some people are able to um, manage that with more confidence and with more like security and better body image and things like that. And I think whether we're speaking for our daughters or our sons, that's something that we would want for all of our kids as they grow up. So I think if we can kind of see how that starts early, it can kind of help empower us and encourage us for what that looks like moving forward. I love that so much that when you were talking about having a good body image, that, that kind of reminds me of how my daughter currently, I mean, I know she's only 18 months, but we just started doing mommy and uh, me ballet classes and she wears her little tutu and she marches around so confidently with her like little Mm -hmm. hanging out of her tutu and looking in the mirror at herself. And I think, you know, I just want her to always just look so confidently in the mirror like she's doing now, you know, so that, that image just came to mind when you were talking about that. I can just hope that at 18, she looks the same way at herself. Yes, absolutely. So you've been talking a lot about variety throughout our entire conversation, which Mm -hmm. I love, obviously, but this is something that I personally struggle with. I don't know if this is what all moms struggle with, but it seems like from everyone that I know, all the moms that I know, my friends, they do too. How do you incorporate a lot of variety into your children's diet? Cause I know at least for me, when I go to the grocery store, even if I plan ahead of time, I'm still like, I don't know how to get a variety of foods at the store. It just kind of seems like I just get the same stuff over and over again, going back to the hummus, like, Oh, she likes hummus. Like, you know, she likes this, she likes fruit or whatnot. Um, I guess, how how do you incorporate more of a variety? Do you have any tips for that when you're shopping at the grocery store or even like opening up the refrigerator and what should we be thinking of? Yeah, no, I think that's a great question because I think, you know, it's a common struggle for all of us to get in food reps, even myself. I mean, you know, I think and live and breathe this all day and I'm still like, oh, I'm going to just make the same dinner again and again because I it, <laughs> it takes mental energy and all of us are, you know, tired and exhausted and spread thin and it's just right. like, it's easier to go to those default things. And I think that's okay to have those defaults and kind of like your common rotations. But I think the more way that we can create variety within those, we can help our children to have more uh, diverse like palates and feeding or food preferences, but it can also help us kind of think of how could we branch out. So just like some examples in from like a meal planning perspective, I often encourage families like to kind of pick which types of cuisines that you want. And so if you know your family or, you know, you like a Mexican night, an Italian night, um, you know, a super salad night, you know, um, Asian grill barbecue, you know, there's all these different cuisines. And so kind of try and categorize what kind of like bucket, I guess you would like Sunday is going to be our spaghetti night. Monday is going to be our, you know, meatless night or seafood night or something like that. Kind of bucket it. And then it takes off the mental load automatically. Cause you just kind of think of like the buckets, but then beyond that, even if, just to go with like some quick examples, say Sunday is spaghetti night. Even if you make spaghetti every, every, um, every Sunday, how can you get variety within that? And so something I talk a lot with families about is like this concept of food chaining. And it's basically like, how can you change the color, the taste, the texture, or the temperature or the shape of this so it's the same food almost, but it has a just a little bit difference. And so this is how we help kids not get stuck on the exact same type of grilled cheese sandwich. That it has to be on this kind of bread with this amount of butter on the outside cooked on this skillet with this type of cheese that's cut in this shape of a triangle on this plate. That's the only grilled cheese I'll eat. This is how we help kids get any grilled cheese under the sun they'll probably eat because they know that there's not just one type of grilled cheese. 
So obviously I just skipped to a different example, but going back to the spaghetti for like a family meal concept, if you can think of like, okay, I'm going to just do spaghetti every Sunday. That's what works for our family. Think of like buying different types of noodles. Could you try, you know, zoodles? Could you mix in, you know, I actually prefer noodles to zoodles, but you know, like you can do half and half or you could buy a different shape of noodles. And so maybe um, you do a rotini instead of a spaghetti noodle, or maybe you change up the sauce. Maybe instead of using ground beef, you use ground turkey, or maybe one week you use like you mix lentils in with it, or you chop up mushrooms really fine and they kind of add this like meaty texture too. Or maybe you shred zucchini in it, but you know, if you're not doing zoodles or something, you shred zucchini into the sauce, put it with the noodles. So there's just variety within that one meal. And sometimes it is, you know, if you have the energy and the desire, you can go out and look for new recipes for these things. But a lot of times it's just, if you can just think like, how could I make this a little bit different than last time? Okay, well, this week I had this type of noodles. I'm going to use a different shape of noodles. Okay, well, this week um, we don't actually, I realize we don't have any spaghetti sauce. So I'm going to do pesto instead because that's what we happen to actually have. So we're still having the spaghetti noodles, but this week it's with pesto. That's obviously a bigger change. And family, like quickly, families will realize like how big of changes kids can tolerate. But, um, you know, some kids, it's like you have to make very small, gradual changes for them to warm up to this idea that it's not a completely new food. Some kids don't mind and it's like, oh, hey, I already like noodles. No big deal. You know, I'm more adventurous of an eater and things like that. So you want the change small enough that the kid won't mind, but big enough that they'll notice if that makes sense. And that can apply at kids' meals in terms of getting that variety in and kind of thinking, you know, going back to grilled cheese, okay, maybe I'm going to put some avocado on this grilled cheese this week and see, or, you know, do half of the grilled cheese with avocado, half of it without. So they get to taste test. How does it taste with avocado on it? Okay. Well now all of a sudden I've added to my arsenal another idea that they'll eat a grilled cheese with avocado. Okay. Well, maybe next week I'm going to try it not cooked. It's just going to be bread, cheese, avocado. Now I have like a cold sandwich that maybe they would eat. And it all just stems from that same thing. So I just really encourage families to like bucket the things, take the mental energy out of like what to offer every night. And then with those buckets, think of like, how can you incorporate some variety from what you know already works for your family, whether it be the family meal or for your child's meal. Gosh, I can't wait to try that. I, I never have thought of that before. And that makes it so much easier, just as you were saying with the the mental load, just to, to kind of incorporate a little bit of variety into the diet and everything. Yeah. And you can get a lot of different nutrition in that way. Because I think often we kind of assume we should just start with like the easy win with our kids. Um, but you know, like you can, on the spaghetti example, you can get lentil based noodles. You can, like I said, do the zoodles or different things like that. So I think it's a great way too to kind of see like, once you know, those love it foods or those foods that your kids have already learned to like, you can then start to think like, okay, how could I bring in a new learning it food or a new element that helps them love more variety, even if it's still spaghetti or grilled cheese in theory. Right. And it's funny you brought up the noodle example because for the longest time I thought my daughter didn't like noodles because I kept on offering her the same kind of noodle and she Mm -hmm. just didn't like the texture. And then one time we just happened to have like a different kind of noodle and then she tried it and she loved it. And, you know, I was saying, oh, it's pasta. And she was saying pasta and she was just having so much fun. And then Mm -hmm. eventually when I went back to the other noodle, then she liked it. So (laughs) yes, I do love that. And that's why when I encourage families to like make their, I call it like a love it, like it learning it list. That's why I always say like, be as specific as possible. Like if a family writes down like noodles, I'm going to say like, tell me what kind, tell me what brand. Will they eat white noodles, whole wheat noodles? Will they eat the vegetable noodles? Will they eat a lentil, like, because some kids will eat all noodles under the sun. It doesn't matter. But most of the times, especially if we have struggle, like progressing and getting our kids to eat more variety, it's a specific one. Mm-hmm. So not to rule out a full category of food when maybe it's just, you know, something like you discovered, it's just a certain type of that, that they haven't liked, but they might like it a different way. So is it ever too late to get your child to have healthy eating habits? I've just heard, uh, you know, a lot of moms just kind of utter say, oh, well, this child's hopeless. Like, hopefully I'll get it right with the next one kind of thing. So, I mean, does it, does it matter how old your child is, whether they're, I don't know, two, five, 10, 15, is it ever too late to try to get them in a, in a better and healthier eating habit? No, I don't think so. I mean, obviously I'm in the line of work that like is committed from infancy on through elderly. So I, I don't believe so at all. And when you look at it from the division of responsibility perspective, 
Um, and it's from Ellen Satter. So if people are interested, my website has a lot of information, but Ellen Satter is kind of the main hub that has created this theory. And on Ellen Satter, it shows, you know, how the division responsibility adapts for different ages and ranges. You know, it looks different, obviously, in infancy than it does in adolescence, just because the amount of um, supervision assistance in feeding is different for those stages. But at either stage, whether it be infancy, adolescence, wherever it might be, and fall in between, families can still intervene and just look at their feeding relationship, look at their mealtime dynamics and say like, man, this just is not working. We need to change something. And when a family hits that point for them to realize like, we're never too far gone, we can start making gradual changes. I always recommend like family-based changes. If you have say one picky eater and everyone else eats, you know, normally, I guess you could say, um, I would still encourage like the whole family to adopt the division of responsibility so that they can start to work together with their kids to kind of help ease them out of this. With each age, there's a different, you know, kind of set of um, strategies, if you will, that I think are most effective based off the kid's development and what they're able to do and communicating wise, what they understand and what they can um, convey back to the parent and things like that. But for like an older kid example, um, since that tends to be where the question comes up more on, you know, how far gone is my kid? Um, just helping parents understand that they can start getting their kids back to these basics and they can start, you know, if the parent is willing to make this mental shift and the parent is willing to kind of start slowly, gradually making changes, they can start involving their kids. And I think that's the unique opportunity of having an older kid that while yes, they're going to have more quote unquote bad behaviors to break because they've had, you know, they've been fed this way meal after meal, day after day, year after year. That's, you know, there's obviously some neural pathways that are going to be pretty set from that. That being said, we can help our kids get involved in new ways and we can have them come help in the kitchen one night a week, or we can have them, you know, with supervision probably depending on the age and stuff. But, you know, we can sit with them on Pinterest and say like, what do you think sounds good for dinner this week? Okay, let's pick a recipe together. You and I are going to shop for it. And this is going to be like something that we know you know, every Saturday night, this is going to be like our new family routine. And even if you only do it for a month, that's still four or five times that you and your child get to relay those bricks and get to set a new foundation for how they're going to start learning, you know, how to, um, to eat and relate with food and to tune in with their bodies and self-regulate and things like that. So I always encourage parents to like, as best as they can understand their child's stage of development or seek out some help for some like strategies or ideas on kind of like what the most effective way to recreate that feeding relationship is depending on the age of their child. But I do think with older ages also comes more mature opportunities. And I think that's really fun. I think that's exciting to think of like the things that we then get to empower and equip our kids to do with, you know, cooking or learning how to meal plan or, you know, to grocery shop or to read labels or to compare products. And like that stuff that I'm not going to do with my one, five and three year old. But, you know, it, say I was working with a family who had like a 10, 13 and 15 year old. That's absolutely, you know, like something that they would really be able to do. Definitely. I want to switch gears now to uh, the question that we ask all the moms that are on our show and it has to tie in with our motto and it's a more of a personal question. So um, we always end the, the podcast with asking, you know, when, when's a time that you realize that it's okay that you weren't a perfect mom and it's okay to be a good one instead. So man, for me, I would probably say every day I'm reminded of that, especially with the addition of each kid. I think I'm more and more reminded of, um, you know, my inability to be a perfect mom, but I would definitely say feeding is an obvious one. I think I just had such high hopes for like the ways that my kid would eat. And I think just getting to see where you know, starting with my oldest, since she has been my most challenging, and I've obviously been feeding her the longest, I think to see how much of a struggle breastfeeding was with her and how much of a struggle introducing solids was with her and how much of a struggle, you know, apprehensive eating was with her. And yet to see how far she's come, I think it's been really rewarding for me because there's been a lot of times that my ego has been had to be put in check as a pediatric dietitian, that just knowing that like, man, my kid is not snacking on kale chips proudly at, like at the park and to see though like the evolution how of how far she's come I think has been much like richer and more rewarding for me than say I had had a really adventurous eater out of the gates 
And I think as a parent, it's given me so much more like empathy and compassion to other parents, which makes me thankful that like, it wasn't something that came easy to us because I think working with all these families before I had kids, I just didn't understand what it was like when, you know, your child doesn't eat what you offer. And I could understand everything under the sun from an educational standpoint about the division of responsibility, but um, I just thought I would do it perfect. And that would lead to a perfect eater. And everyone would look at us as being like, wow, that you must be perfect at what you do and things like that. And so I think I just really um, had like my profession and my personal life and that or like kind of my personal, um, you know, value system as like a mom intermingled a little bit. But I think to see that like, it's okay to just do like a good job, but do it day after day, you know, week after week, month after month and be committed to like the values that my family values and that, you know, professionally play into my family values. And that's better than being perfect. And that's okay. And it's okay to be transparent about that publicly. I think that was probably one of the biggest things for me, especially as my Instagram um, grew and I got to know more families. You know, I kind of felt this struggle of like, do I, do I share authentically my struggles or do I pretend like this is a lot easier than it really is for me so that parents, you know, don't question my, you know, kind of professional abilities, but it's been so much more rewarding getting to connect with other families and connect with other parents on that level of like empathy and compassion and understanding that like, it's okay that we're all just doing a good job and we're doing our best, even if that isn't the best and like a perfect job, if that makes sense. I love that so much. Yeah. And it it definitely makes you a lot more relatable too. And as I said earlier, just, you know, I just breathed a sigh of relief when you said that, knowing that you being, you know, in your profession still had to struggle just like the rest of us. So, wow, Ashley, thank you so much for coming on our podcast and sharing all of your wisdom and knowledge. I definitely learned so much and I know everyone listening did as well. So thank you so much. Well, good. Well, thank you so much for having me. I really appreciate the opportunity. Thank you so much again for listening in on another episode of the Mother Good Podcast. We hope you really enjoyed today's conversation. And as a reminder, Mother Good is a nonprofit organization funded by our generous donors. So if you would like to support this podcast, please consider joining our donors at mothergoodco.com slash give.